Welcome to the Research Recharge Podcast. Recharge your research process with inspiration from UAH faculty and community members. We're your hosts, Heather Lee Byrne and Michael Manasco, librarians at the UAH Salmon Library. Today's episode is Dr. Joseph Ng speaking to us from the Biological Sciences Department. And there are a few things that particularly stuck out from, from his interview. A few of those things, heavily, I think would be the theme of collaboration that we want to emphasize in each of our podcasts. And for me, I know it is particularly interesting to see these common threads of these academics, these researchers, defining what collaboration means for them. And so it's interesting to hear from someone in the STEM fields who also does a really good job of uh, taking that point of view from the, maybe we'll say the liberal arts side and really showing how a rounded person would respond to these questions. Someone who is rounded in various disciplines and can stress both the importance of collaboration in his academic life, as well as his personal life, his personal growth. So that was really fascinating to me. Yeah, as we um, present this interview, I hope people will listen out for, you know, the way that Dr. Ng's life experience has impacted his trajectory, whether that's his original interest in the liberal arts, as you you brought up, or some of his uh, later collaborations. So let's get into the interview. We want to welcome Dr. Joseph Ng to our podcast today. Dr. Ng is a professor of biological sciences in the College of Science at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Dr. Ng received his PhD in biochemistry from the University of California, Riverside in 1992. He has written numerous articles about biotechnology and structural biology and is the coordinator for the biotechnology science and engineering program at UAH. Dr. Ng, welcome to our podcast. We're so happy to have you on. Thank you for having me, Michael and Heather. Welcome. So to get us started, could you tell us a little bit about your research in your own words? Sure. My research uh, falls into two categories. One is what I originally have been trained at for uh, since my entire career, since graduate school. And, uh, And that is the discipline of biochemistry. It is a subdivision of biochemistry and studying the structures of macromolecules. And what that means is that I study the shapes and sizes of very small atomic arrangements which form uh, molecules uh, that corresponds to like enzymes, you know, different types of proteins. And I'm looking at the shapes and sizes and the arrangement of atoms, and I'm trying to decipher biological functions that are behind uh, these structures. So this is called structural biology, and this is what Michael was mentioning in his introduction. And um, I'm basically down studying in the biology realm of what conventional biology would study the shapes and forms of you know, animals and bones, but I'm taking it down to the atomic level. And the second one is probably more recent. It is related to post-traumatic stress disorder. And even though that they may seem very distantly unrelated, but they are related in many cases because I'm utilizing what I've been trained to look at uh, molecular structures and trying to understand mechanisms of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So how did you become interested in this field of study? First, how did you become interested in biochemistry? And then maybe if you can tell us a little bit more about how this research on post-traumatic stress came about. So I wasn't actually always interested in, in, in biochemistry, but I have been always interested in looking at patterns and designs, looking at uh, arrangements from an, kind of an artistic point of view. And then actually when I started as an undergraduate, I actually was more in the humanities. I studied more subjects that related to arts. I was interested in history and uh, in languages, but it, it was too hard for me. I had to read too many books and my writing wasn't that great, but I did excel in the, in the science area, particularly in, in, in math and chemistry. And um, I still had a really big interest in looking at symmetry, kind of, you know, shapes and sizes and how they relate to each other. And during my studies uh, as an undergraduate in, in biochemistry as well, too, I discovered that there were a lot of things in nature in the biological system that had a lot of artistic arrangements. You know, uh, for example, uh, when I mentioned about symmetry, you know, in biology, you see symmetry all the time. If you go outside, there are, if you look at most living things, particularly higher primates, there are mirror symmetries, even for us. You know, we could, we could divide our bodies straight in half. It's very symmetrical. If you look at uh, plants and flowers, they have, you know, four-fold symmetry, six-fold symmetry, many things symmetrically to each other, very artistic, like you find in arts. And I could go on and on in terms of what we observe in nature of having artistic elements. And, and really, that's what kind of uh, honed me in in staying with the study. So when I went to graduate school, there is a technique called a, uh, crystallography. And crystallography is basically crystallizing protein uh, as a step to use X-ray diffraction to determine three-dimensional structures. And these three-dimensional structures have also all these great symmetry elements, and they correspond to certain functions of biology. So that's what kind of carried me on in terms of looking at the uh, structural part. And after I got my PhD, I got involved with a space program, particularly with NASA, and I, I spent time in Europe uh, as a postdoc with the European Space Agencies. And we ended up flying samples up in the International Space Station. And again, we are trying to crystallize proteins in the hope of using diffraction methodologies to decipher the structures of these. And, and, and at the end of the day, we're looking at how the atomic arrangement will look like. And again, observing what type of uh, shapes and arrangement and sizes and how they're related to biological function. And that's what I came here to UH. Uh, I am in the biology department and I, and I started and still am doing the biochemistry and under the technique of looking at structural biology. And then in 2010, uh, unfortunately, uh, as you know, we, we had this uh, unfortunate shooting at, at UAH. So that, that made me turn around and think about a lot of different things. Uh, so as a survivor, I've noticed that you know, trauma was a, not, not only an important aspect to look at, and it made me aware that not only for ourselves, but for many other, and, and, and at the time, particularly for those in the military, first responders, and natural disaster victims, and I was trying to look at it from the molecular level, trying to find out what are the proteins involved, what are the molecules, biological molecules involved, and kind of utilizing the same techniques and trying to decipher what are the atomic arrangements, what are the shapes of these, how are they related to each other, and, and, and try to find 
a uh, functional solution of what causes uh, PTSD and, and how to treat that. That's kind of the, the two categories, and, and that's how I got into it. So yeah, the 2010 um, shooting was before I came to the university, so I hadn't re- realized that that was part of this trajectory, but that's really a fascinating response and something that I think is really important because it shows how our real lives affect our research and the avenues that we go down. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you again for those reflections, and it is amazing how uh, in, in your talk so far, and I want to come back to this, that uh, you mentioned so many multidisciplinary crossovers and connections with your research, not only in what you currently do, but the inspirations that got you here from real life uh, trauma, and also a crossover from your early interests from the study of symmetry and exposing you to being open to, I would say, it's common amongst many academic fields for us to be siloed in our own colleges or our own minds in terms of this is my discipline and, it, and it's what we do. And we get bogged down and forget the overall, uh, I guess, human story or the contribution of academia to better that uh, journey. I want to come back to that uh, multidisciplinary idea. But before I do, uh, you've mentioned a, f- a few uh, things about your research in terms of crystallography and the sort of uh, focus of your research. Could you speak a little bit more about what that research process looks like for you particularly? For example, how would you describe this research process to someone in another field? What, uh, what tools do you use? What uh, is, is that uh, either quantitative or qualitative process like for you? Yeah, that's a good question, Michael. Crystallography is not a term that a lot of people understand. And to give you an example of that, when I first came here to UAH, I, uh, you know, about first or second year in, you know, as a young professor, I, I organized a, uh, a crystallography conference. It was more beyond a local meeting. I had people from, you know, different parts of the country, and it was advertised pretty much kind of everywhere around Huntsville. And during the conference and after the conference, I actually had some uh, complaints about me. And after the conference, I was called in into the dean's office. And, uh, you know, when you get called into the dean's office, especially (laughs) as a young professor, it's not always good news. It's like being called into the principal's office. So when I got in and apprehensively, I sat down and the dean at that time said, you know, there was a complaint uh, made about you in terms of organizing this conference. And I said, oh, what, what was that? And he says, well, the complaint was that you were practicing devil worshiping and magic and all sorts of immoral methodologies. And, uh, wow. And, and, really? And, <laughs> and, and, um, and we both smiled. And I saw where this was getting at because a lot of people mistaken crystallography as using crystals as magic, as predicting the future, you know, uh, promoting psychic powers and even communicating with aliens in space, you know, and and then, (laughs) and I quickly understood and I laughed because I, I realized, you know, when you're, like you said, when you're immersed in the field, in the science, you don't really think about, you know, what the general public perceives us at. And and just the word crystallography, you know, I had a lot of confusion. So, uh, lessons learned. After that, I made every public talk and, and, and even in my classrooms, I have a first slide. I said, this is what crystallography is not. And I showed examples of funny pictures of uh, fortune telling and, you know, aliens and <laughs> witchcraft and things like that. And after that, you know, I, I tried to explain that crystallography is a, uh, is a scientific process, a tool that you you crystallize in my case a protein and what crystallizing mean is 
try to find conditions in which you could align molecules in periodic orders. And so, for example, a diamond is a crystal. It, it is, is a crystal of carbon, carbon arrangement in a very, very uh, tightly ordered and periodic. And, if you, and that's just one atom. You take salt crystals, so everybody understands crystalline salt, and that's sodium chloride, and that's two atoms. Well, I work with proteins, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of atoms. And uh, it's not easy to try to crystallize that because you're talking about you know, promoting the assembly of this. The reason why crystallization is, is important because the way we get information is we shoot a laser, which is called monochromatic light, meaning a single wavelength uh, light. And we have to shoot the light at a wavelength that's comparable to the distance of the atoms that we're looking at. And in this case, it's atomic distances. And it's between one to three angstroms, all right? So, so what that means really is we're talking about X-rays that has that wavelength. And we use utilizing X-rays to diffract off a diffraction image. And, and these are a bunch of spots. So this is very, it's a very similar to taking a compact disc, for example, uh, or a DVD, and just taking uh, a laser pointer and shooting at the compact disc. And what you will notice, if your hands are steady enough and at the right angle, when you shoot it, the deflection that gives off on the wall will give you some very discrete spots. And these discrete spots is manifested by the very tight orders of these groups. And so they give you information of distances and, and, and spacing. And so crystals is a three-dimensional version of that. And so when you get uh, diffraction spots, we could mathematically calculate what the shape of the structure looks like at the atomic level. And the reason we go through all that trouble is because there is no microscope, no tool that you could directly observe it. You know, you could, you could look at bacteria under the microscope and you could observe it. And, and perhaps even going down to further, to a much more smaller, but when you're at the atomic level, there is no lens that's able to do that. And that's why we're able to do this directly. So in terms of crystallography, that, that's crystallography 101 in a, in, a, in a few minutes, maybe even longer, but, but just to let people know what, what this is about. And it's, a, it's an international field. It's important because knowing these structures lead to drug discovery, lead to understanding of diseases, and it leads to understanding of, of how our body functions and even evolutionary information of where we come from. That's wow, great. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. And, and so thank you for sharing some of those approaches and tools, uh, activities and exercises that you go through to obtain this data. Uh, on that note, one thing particularly I'm interested in regarding the sciences, those who work in the STEM fields, especially regarding the question of what we call open science, uh, the openly available information out there on the web, perhaps that's not behind a paywall. I, I believe in what you're describing here too, I, I'm, I'm as a librarian, I'm familiar with a few tools uh, such I know Cambridge has a uh, uh, crystal, uh, crystalline data tool, uh, I believe, uh, analysis tool, sort of a visualization tool. Are there tools like that that you have found? Are, are, they, are tools like that to visualize this data becoming more accessible, do you think, in your field? Is it something you've been able to use in terms of visualizing and modeling? Do you see those types of things as a positive in your field going forward? So maybe in terms of an accessibility and entry point? That's a great question, Michael. I would say crystallography probably started or became very popular in, in the early 50s. And that's when James Watson, Francis Crick, and Maurice Wilkins 
uh, use crystallographic technique and Rosalind Franklin, I have to add, even though she's not usually included in, the, in this group, that use crystallography to decipher the structure of DNA. And of course, everybody knows or seen images of, of DNA, double helical and so forth. You don't have to know, you know, the, the, the biochemical details of it, but uh, I, I think the general public appreciates the general shapes of this. And, and that really started out this, this whole explosion of understanding molecular bi biology and structure. But at the time, there were no computer graphics system that we could look at 3D. I, the very first structure was built on ball and stick. And it was built in a cage. And you had to really measure these things with rulers and things like that in terms of three-coordinate systems. So that very first structure of, of, of DNA was really built by wires and balls in the cage. And, and to this day, the original one is, is, is in a museum somewhere, but, but that's how, how this all started, uh, was really looking at things that you could build, sculptures, balls and sticks and things like that. And it wasn't until probably about the 70s and the 80s till we got more computational power and we started getting visual graphics and that made it accessible to more people because now that you had computers and visual capabilities, you were able to look at things three-dimensionally. But still, it wasn't accessible or completely accessible to the public. It was more accessible to the scientific community because getting a computational visual system was very expensive. You know, you're talking about a, a, a computer that, you know, is the size of a car and, you know, just to do uh, computation. And I would say probably in the 80s and 90s where the, the manufacturing or the production of computational visualization became much more accessible. And, and then in the scientific community, it became that if you were to publish a reporting of a structure, you, you had to deposit the three-dimensional coordinates in a public database bank. And so if you were funded by federal dollars, by tax money, you must do that in order to publish. So that made it completely open. And, and so by the time I started school, and when I went to graduate school, and by the time 80s and 90s came along, you know, we, we've had pretty sophisticated graphic system. And moving fast forward to this day, I mean, there is just light speed acceleration. I mean, I, I could do uh, show you three-dimensional graphics on, on, on my laptop, and the, the computational powers that requires to do that uh, would have taken 30 years ago, you know, a, a bigger computer, much more expensive. So in terms of accessibility, it's publicly accessible because of a few things. One is the uh, public mandate for submitting your results for publication if you're funded by federal dollars. And number two is the technology for electronics and computation. And so that moved everything available to high schools or colleges, high schools, and even elementary schools. To date, you know, I could go to some of the, the, uh, the elementary schools here in, uh, in Huntsville, and I could see fourth graders, fifth graders playing around with computers. You know, that, that's, that's a no-brainer now. You know, all these kids, they're always on iPads and things like that. So now you have educational tools with structures and you could spin things around in 3D. So yes, we've come a long ways from something that's very limited to a specific discipline to, to, to hand-touching models 
all the way now to, you know, from, from young kids that are able to push a button and they are able to see things that, you know, all, all the discoveries in, in, in molecular structures. That's great. Yeah, and I know I see that with my own children and the technical literacy they're being challenged to uh, confront even at a young age in elementary school. Coming back to a bit of the, I would say, the aha moments for you yourself, you mentioned a bit about this already, uh, transitioning from more of a humanities background into the uh, more STEM side of it. Is there a moment that you can recall where you got it, where things clicked in terms of this is what research is going to look like? You mentioned as the decades proceeded throughout our sort of the crystallography scene in terms of technology advancing. Uh, was it an undergraduate moment, a graduate moment where you realized, okay, this is the kind of research I'm going to be doing. I get it now. I, I can do this. I'm good at this. Anything jump out to you? Well, uh, there are many aha moments. There was an aha moment when I was in school saying, this is what I want to do for a living because it was, it was just fun and the whole world wasn't doing it. And it was part of that frontier spirit, pioneering spirit, I mean. That really was an aha saying, yeah, I, I, I would like to do this for a living and, and I would like to, be, to teach and, and work in an environment where uh, you could combine teaching and, and research. And so, and I, I think when I was going to school, you know, you, you really had two choices uh, in my field. Uh, it was more academics or an industry. And even back then in industry, not a lot of people went into it uh, only because there was this um, notion that going to academics was more noble and going into any type of commercialization was, you know, prostituting your mind and selling yourself out. And, and of course, that's not, all, that's not true at all, but that was the mindset. And, and this was the mindset uh, when I was an undergraduate and, and even to a point as a graduate. I think by the time I was, became a graduate student, commercialization became much more acceptable, uh, mainly because practical reason. I, I think getting federal dollars and grants was much more difficult. So, you know, finding alternatives for economic means uh, was much more acceptable. And, and of course, you know, in the last 20 years, being practical was, was very important. So commercialization was embraced now and, and, uh, and, and very promoted. And even in some university, uh, even will help you with your tenure and, and promotion. And so we come a long ways uh, with, 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 with that mindset. So that's, that's that aha moment. The, the other aha moment I think is worth mentioning is when um, probably my, my years here at UAH, we were involved with structural, structural genomics, and that was funded by NIH. And that is to really try to get as many structures in a genome as possible. And so this is a pipeline, and just trying to get every structure you know, known. And, and I think when I was doing this, you know, I was looking at patterns, looking at symmetry, and I was asking, you know, there are all these, these, these very interesting patterns that may have evolutionary uh, significance. And uh, looking at these more carefully that, you know, in the molecular scale, you probably shapes and sizes go through perhaps the same evolutionary processes, natural selection, at the molecular level, as you would, as is known in classical biology, uh, as Darwinian selection, as, as looking at a natural selection in the or organismal level. So the looking at these shapes and sizes saying, well, there is, there's a finite number, there's not infinite number, meaning that as more structures came out, more repeatable structures 
uh, came to being. And so you learn that only certain shapes and sizes makes it and, and survives. So that was a, a, a very, very fun moment. And I think that uh, really puts things in a different perspective in terms of trying to understand evolution, biology, and, and, and how we got here. That's fascinating. On that note, once again, you sort of mentioned these multidisciplinary crossovers, and I'm hearing a lot about, obviously, a particular crossover with what I would call the allied health fields uh, in terms of w whether that be mental or physical health, uh, DNA analysis, a lot of applications here. So I have sort of a two-part question for you here regarding essentially how you think your experience so far researching and working in your field what do you think you, that brings to folks in other disciplines? And I'll use an example in terms of, again, allied health. Were there particular conflicts or synergies you found in your own research approach or goals when, when working with these sort of, you know, someone in nursing or the allied health fields or even with the space agency you mentioned? Those are different disciplines but share a lot of commonalities. Do you, does anything jump out to you? And how would you uh, off, turn that into advice for people who are, in other fields trying to understand that multidisciplinary research? That's a great question, Michael. And I, I gotta say, at the start of my career in, in terms of undergraduate and in graduate school, I think the mindset still was, you know, focus on your own discipline, do very well, and just stay laser focused on your own technique. And of course, as time went on, after I received my doctorate, and things were different now, you, you almost had to use different types of techniques, collaborate with others, and collaboration became the magical word. And years later, even getting grants from NIH or NSF, it was almost mandatory that you show some kind of spirit of collaboration with a, a different discipline. And even if, if I didn't want to, it was not a choice because things were so diverse and things applied to you know all different areas that you cannot be a, a, a master of one of all fields and, and you got to rely on everybody's expertise and uh, and so you know the, the discipline I work in you know you you had to work with people who are working in computation programming uh, you have to work with people in mathematics in physics because these are all areas that are important in trying to figure out a problem but I got to say, what is more expansive and very significant that I've found probably in, in the last 10 or 15 years is really working with fields that not even related with science. And I'll give you an example. Uh, music. Anyone who, who listen, work with music, uh, understand there's a lot of symmetry, a lot of, a lot of aesthetics parts of it, and you know, how we listen to it, different types of structures, different hierarchic ways to break down a structure. This is really no difference in what I do in terms on the chemistry level. And sometimes understanding what I've learned in biological uh, shapes and sizes and structure applies to also disciplines that are outside of science and particularly I would say in, in music as well too. And, and that's why I, I, I have a really big interest in, in working with people in the music discipline as well too, because you see these same type of processes, looking at uh, of similar structures, symmetrical relationship, mathematical relationship, and you could even use computational tools to break down relationships of musical notes and pitches. So uh, I would say 
this collaboration, the necessity of collaboration, trying to understand and, and, and discover new things, it is almost obligatory that you expand not only disciplines in the same in STEM field, but even beyond in other fields outside of science. Great. That's, that's a great uh, insight there into that. I appreciate that. I know a lot of folks in other disciplines will appreciate hearing that from someone who has some experience in this field, but so many others. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. So we have come to our last question, which is just for fun. We ask everybody, and this is just off the top of your head, what was the last thing that you Googled? Bugs Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And the reason for that was uh, I was actually trying to listen to a classical piece of music that had some, some relevance to, uh, to, to understanding structure. And anyone who grew up with Bugs Bunny knows that they, they play a lot of classical musics and, and that's how kids learn. About, at least that's how <laughs> my exposure to classical music was, was William, or Tom and Jerry, for example. And sometimes, you know, I, I teach biochemistry, genetics, and, and, uh, and uh, computational biology, and I incorporate some of this in terms of, you know, assignments that things that are related to music, for example, the genetic code, you know, if you look at the, uh, the letterings of the genetic code or even protein sequences, you could actually play, look at relationships with pitch notes, for example, and you could, you could actually produce out something musical. Um, or you could take musical scores that are from great composers and you could try to do it the other way around and trying to convert it back to the genetic code and see if there's anything meaningful. And you know, it, it, uh, it provides a lot of interest and, I, and I, sometimes I give assignments to my genetic students, my programming students in, in bioinformatics and, uh, and, and trying to look at this. And, and this is a great way to let students know at an early part of their career that science is not only dead focus on on your particular field, there are, there are a lot of things to discover when you cross a disciplinary. So, so I, I, I think one of the funny things was, yeah, I, 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 I Googled it uh, just, just to find, you know, one of the, the uh, Elmer Fudd, Bugs Bunny rival uh, episodes. That's great. That's Thank great. you for sharing. And I, I'm going to say that we may be the only podcast where we've made the Perfect connection between Bugs Bunny and crystallography. <laughs> I think you've made the case, Dr. Ng. I'm a great Bugs Bunny fan. <laughs> I know we were just saying our kids don't see as much Looney Tunes, you know, those kinds of things. We were expecting them to, to know a piece of classical music and uh, they just oh, didn't you know, get it. <laughs> a lot of these old cartoons have so much uh, hidden innuendos, meanings, and even uh, educational uh, aspects of it, that viewing it as an adult, you go, wow. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot well, there. I think, yeah. And, and I, so I, I think that takes us sort of the end of our time here. And I want to thank you once again, Dr. Ng, so much for providing these insights and discussions uh, about not only science, but collaborating uh, as well with others in, in various fields. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Heather. It's a pleasure talking to you guys. Thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Ng. It was wonderful to see his passion for his field. And it was really interesting to hear about him, him talk about how the field has changed from his undergraduate days when there was the sense of trying to keep the science pure and noble instead of going into this industrial or um, commercial application, but that how 
that changed to make it a good thing or a positive thing to try to secure funding by going into other fields and collaborating, whether that's in industry or with other academics. Right. And Dr. Ng started his interview with us kind of talking about his love of patterns and symmetries. He saw symmetries in nature and in his work, right? So I think the way he described that uh, sort of described his own personal disposition to perhaps see these symmetries in other people's work more than maybe other people might. So for him, it was more of a question of why not work together? He saw the patterns. He saw across disciplines in the humanities. I loved how he talked about music and how um, he had already had this interest in music and classical music and how that was just a natural place for him to apply his crystallography techniques and to even kind of turn it back and see what see what came out for students in their in their projects. Exactly. And you can see him carry that on into his practical recommendations for why collaborate, even beyond just his own personal uh, ability to see those patterns. Uh, He talked about NASA. He talked about uh, his own studies with protein uh, visualizations and uh, collaborating with NASA and, and sending up samples to space and working across global lines at times. Doing that Uh, required um, working across disciplines for grants, like you mentioned, and and to get grants written to fund a project. Working with uh, other disciplines to do that often uh, drove him to explore other tools, right? And he talked a little bit about uh, what open science meant for him, what kinds of tools, even more so than the data, we talked about visualization tools a little bit. Yeah, I I heard that. And I know a little bit about some visualization tools in other fields that we have available through the library, like Ovid's Visible Body database that we have. But could you mention a little bit more about that, Michael? Absolutely. And that's something that some, some of these are subscription tools, and there are a few open source, and to Dr. Ng's point, more of these tools are becoming open source. There are tools, though, uh, such as the CCDC, a Cambridge project, project, which I believe is the Cambridge Crystallization Data Center, uh, where essentially what you're looking at is a tool that uh, allows you to input uh, chemical compounds or other sorts of data. On the one hand, you're able to visualize and see a three-dimensional rendering or other sort of analysis of these chemicals which in turn allows you to, I believe some of them will link to articles with smart linking technology also to get you to other materials. So so it's sort of a a relatively new thing in some ways. There are projects like openchemistryproject.org, the Avogrado tool, I believe it's called. Some of those, if you guys want to explore those or talk to your local librarian to learn about those. But what those do, I think overall, Dr. Ng's point about collaboration, there's a safety issue as well, especially during research during COVID-19, during the coronavirus, One of the uh, biggest collaborations in his field, he talked about uh, pharmaceuticals, the biochemical aspect, where you have a global scale of sharing data. And when you have visualization tools, such as CCDC has, you're able to maybe more safely do predictive modeling. I believe it's called computational chemistry or predictive techniques, chem informatics. These are terms you'll see or hear. Some of those of you who work in that field may be familiar with that. But it's a way to maybe more safely look at predictive models and solutions outside of a lab environment. So that's a really cool thing. So you would be able to then visualize, say, the coronavirus um, and without actually having to have the virus in the lab. Right, especially when you have suggested cures or you have people throw out things like chloroquine or, or other types of um, you know, chemicals or uh, other ideas that you can say, well, let's look at that then. Let's see where is the, the proof, right? So that is one application I believe he was talking about in terms of collaboration. 
Great. Well, I hope some of our listeners are really excited to go out there and visualize some chemical compounds after this. Thank you for listening to the Research Recharge podcast. We are Heather Lee Byrne and Michael Manasco, librarians at the University of Alabama in Huntsville's Salmon Library. We would like to thank the UAH and Library Administration for their support. Our theme music was written by UAH alum Jason Conklin and performed by current student Jackson Love. Thanks to you both. We also want to thank Leslie Bardos for our graphic. Please join us next time on the Research Recharge podcast.